Welcome back to eConversations with Nate. Today's episode is a webinar replay from the June 8th Economic Measurement Seminar Preview Webinar on Economic Statistics from U.S. Government and Industry Sources. Over the next hour, the EMS Planning Committee will deliver an overview of the data provided by the U.S. Federal Statistical System with a special focus on those that will be covered during the conference. They will also highlight examples of common misinterpretations of the data and the concepts to focus on in the upcoming EMS sessions. This session is led by Maureen Haver, CBE, founder and president of Haver Analytics. Maureen, take it away. Greetings from New York. And uh, let me share my screen here. Um, and we will start. We're looking forward to blue skies here in uh, New York. And we're also looking forward to the NAVE Economic Measurement Seminar, which will be our 20th. Um, I'm asked to turn on my video. I'm, okay, there we go. <laughs> um, this will indeed be our 20th seminar. In fact, uh, 20 years ago, three of us planned a seminar in Kissimmee, Florida. And we started that seminar with a broad view of the federal statistical system. And I was given the role. So I've been doing this 20 years. <laughs> um, but during COVID, we sort of changed it up a bit. And um, we're now um, uh, doing it with the organizers of the seminar. Um, so in this meeting today, we're going to give you an overview of what's going to be covered in the EMS. And we're going to focus on these track A sessions, which are really important for those of you contemplating the CBE exam. We've actually uh, observed that CBE of applicants or exam takers, they find economic measurement to be the more challenging of the segments. And I think important it's because standard uh, college and graduate courses do not cover those subjects. So NAVE is here to help you do that. Um, we also have track B sessions for those people who would like to come back, learn more, or for a particular session, think they really know the data and uh, they do not um, choose to go to track A. So we have track B, but today we're going to focus on track A primarily. So let me start by uh, introducing my fellow organizers. And we'll start here with Mike Horgan, co-chair of the committee. Hi, thank you, Maureen. Uh, my name is Mike Horgan. I am the president of the Upshot Institute. And prior to joining the Institute, I actually had, had the pleasure of running both the inflation programs and the employment unemployment programs at the BLS. And I've been involved in EMS for quite a long time, uh, thanks to Maureen, actually. Um, and sort of 
giving everyone sort of what is going on with government statistics is just an essential part of the EMS. And I'm really looking forward to the uh, July meetings. Thanks. Hi, Maureen. Um, glad to be here today. I'm the chief economist. This is Jack Kleinhens, chief economist at the National Retail Federation. I'm a past NAEP president, and I've this will be my 20th seminar uh, that I participated in. And finally, I have my own economic consulting and wealth management firm. Hi, everyone. I'm Dana Saporta, an economist and a lifelong Fed watcher. I spent about 30 years analyzing the U.S. economy and doing a monetary policy analysis for such firms as Citibank, Stone and McCarthy Research, and Credit Suisse. Hi, everyone. I'm Kathleen Maven, CBE. I am currently at the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis in supervision, and I serve as the senior business economist here, where I look at economic and banking conditions. And a lot of the data that we'll talk about today are data I use on my regular Outlook talks, and really excited to share those with you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kenneth Kim, and I'm a senior economist at KPMG. And I also wanted to mention that I had the pleasure of working with Dana Saporta for many years together. Uh, at KPMG, my day-to-day -day is engaging with business leaders from many areas of the U.S. economy, which include banking, consumer and retail, industrial manufacturing, private equity, and real estate. Uh, in this sense, we help KPMG's clients assess the constantly evolving US and global economic landscape. Okay, thank you. So moving forward, uh, we're going to talk about three statistical agencies and the Federal Reserve, but there are nearly a hundred different agencies uh, that have line items in their budget for statistics. And um, 13 are really regarded as principal statistical agencies. So for those 13, the government spends about 3.4 billion, at least they did in fiscal year 22. And about two thirds of that spend goes to the Bureau of the Census. In fact, the majority of the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Bureau of the Economic Analysis. And then of course, the Federal Reserve is an important source of data, but they, they're wealthy, they pay for their own. Um, in laying out the seminar, uh, we came up with a set of data categories. And I've listed them here. We are going to cover the most important among them today. But in fact, the seminar will cover nearly every one of these categories in July. And of course, we're going to start off with employment. And employment is um, the data series that gets the most attention. Um, it's the first federal indicator released in the month. And there are many different versions of employment figures out there. There are data from census, BEA, BLS, 
and also the Department of Labor with their initial claims data, of which in fact were released today. But it's really the employment situation, which generally is the first Friday of the month. Occasionally it's different and you will learn in the EMS um, what causes those differences. The employment situation gives you really two different measures of employment. The first is the survey of households or the CPS. And that is a survey of about 60,000 households done by the Census Bureau for uh, the BLS. There is also the survey of establishments, and this is a survey of, done by the BLS themselves, and uh, they reach out uh, to about 130,000 businesses and government agencies, which, come, which I believe cover about 670,000 individual work sites. These two surveys have very different objectives. And one important takeaway from the EMS is you better know the difference between the two and how to use them or not use them together. The household survey gives us the unemployment rate and the participation rate by going to households. The establishment survey gives us jobs created, earnings and hours worked. So I said jobs, not persons. So if a person has two jobs, they're going to be counted twice in establishment, only once in the household survey. However, the household survey covers a number of um, workers not covered in payroll. So if you look at this chart, you're going to see that over time, it's a little less clear during the uh, 2020 uh, pandemic, but essentially household employment is obviously much, much higher. And that is because it includes agricultural workers, self-employed workers, unpaid family workers, uh, household workers, uh, all of whom are not included in the payroll survey. When you compare the month-to-month -month change, in fact, you'll see they sometimes give entirely different stories. In fact, um, um, just last Friday, or the past employment report, we had the situation where payroll went up 339 jobs, 30, uh, 339,000 jobs, but household declined by 310,000. Now, at the EMS, you'll learn how to dig into the numbers. 
the household figure, if you adjust it to the payroll definition, it turned out it actually was stronger, not weaker. And uh, the number was, uh, I believe, something like 394,000 jobs gained. Looking further into the data, you see the loss was really due to a very sizable reduction in the self-employed. So, you ran employment unemployment for many, many years at BLS. And, you know, as I just said, 339,000 jobs were created in May. Uh, which really exceeds the February 2020 peak employment by many million, 3.7 million jobs. So clearly we have a hot labor market, despite the Fed's efforts to, you know, slow down aggregate demand and cut inflation. Um, you know, what are some of the labor market indicators that you're following to assess the strength? And what do you think the Fed is looking at? Well, certainly the payroll employment number that you cited, the 339,000, absolutely. That is, the payroll employment number is just really important. Um, and those numbers by industry are also very important. And they show a lot of strength. Um, the market is hot. There's a lot of talk about labor shortages. I look at jolts. Job openings and labor turnover survey. Um, that shows that hires, or excuse me, job openings have greatly exceeded hires since the end of 2020. It's beginning to ease a little bit, but it's still a hot market. Um, wages, average wages uh, from the current employment statistics survey show elevated, um, elevated rates, which firms that need workers have to pay higher wages. So there's a number of there's a number of establishment ones. But in addition, when you go to the uh, to the seminar. Um, on measuring employment, you'll also learn about the household survey data. Labor force participation rates are a real concern in terms of who's participating in the labor markets and the declines among older workers, for example. So there's a, there's a number of uh, household and establishment survey uh, data that I look at. And in addition to that track A measuring employment on Monday, um, there's also a track B session at the same time and those other labor market indicators that you were talking about, Maureen, including JOLTS, initial claims, and business employment dynamics. Right, and um, so for those of you who have heard track A, uh, there's lots to learn in track B. In fact, claims today had some real surprises for people and perhaps you'll learn more why. Is it seasonal adjustment or other reasons? Okay. Um, Let's move on to national income and product accounts. That's going to be the second session in the EMS. And uh, the BEA uh, brings together data collected from many parts of the government and also private sector data to produce gross domestic product and gross domestic income. They also provide rich detail on monthly personal consumption expenditures for those of you interested in detailed consumer spending. 
they calculate monthly personal income and quarterly uh, corporate profits. And the BEA has a lot more data than we probably can cover in the first EMS session. Uh, they have an integrated set of the industry accounts, a lot of detailed personal income data by state and local area. Um, they're now doing gross product for states and metro areas. You'll also learn that with chain majors, you really cannot do standard arithmetic. You can add up C plus I plus G plus X minus M in nominal terms, current dollars. And for the current reference year, uh, but you should not, should not, cannot, do ordinary arithmetic with the components and get the correct results. So BEA has taken on doing many of these calculations for us. And here on this particular chart, I'm, uh, I'm showing contributions to growth in real GDP. And so you'll see in Q4, Growth was, I believe, 2.6%. All the contributions were positive. They're in percentage points. You can add this up, and they add up perfectly to 2.6. Whereas in Q1, growth was 1.3%. Uh, consumption from this chart appears very strong. Uh, but it seems to have been offset in large part by investment. Um, so, uh, you know, we see the dotted line here, which is really the growth rate of real GDP. Um, you know, it's not touching the top of those bars. Um, so, Kathleen, I know that for many years it's been your job to really dig into these numbers. And uh, I'm just uh, wondering, what, what do you think was behind the Q1 growth rate? How would you look into that? Thanks, Maureen. So I definitely agree with you that, you know, using these contributions is a very helpful way to look at what's really the underlying strength or the overall trend in growth. So it's very helpful that the BEA provides these numbers for us. When I'm looking at putting together a narrative or just looking at what the forecast could be, I'll use these contributions to get a sense of what was the main driver or a drag on growth for that quarter. And I agree with what you mentioned earlier that for Q1, it looks like the biggest drag was in inventory investment. In fact, it was more than two percentage points of that, of that overall number of a decline. So really offsetting what was otherwise a very strong number on consumer spending. And what's really interesting about looking at the contributions is you would see the 1.3% for overall growth, but underlying that, consumer spending, which is a very large component, actually rose from 1% in the fourth quarter to 3.8% in the first quarter. 
And we can look into more of that BEA data to see that this was actually driven by spending on durable goods, especially motor vehicles, and also a healthy increase in consumer spending on services. And uh, that's a sector that continues to recover from the pandemic recession. So before you mentioned all of the data that the BEA gives us, and we'll be talking about that in, the, in, in this track, track A, on Monday, July 17th. And um, there's a lot more you can do to dig into consumer spending as well. And Jack, I think you have a session on consumer spending. Is that right? Oh, that's right, Kathleen. And also on Monday afternoon, July 17th, we've actually added a new perspective on the consumer uh, to our schedule. Uh, in many ways, as you were pointing out, uh, you know, the consumer is a large contributor to the economy, comprising mm -hmm. nearly 70% of GDP. And consumer spending, or in, as we know in the NIPA accounts or the national income account, personal consumption expenditures, as reported by the BEA, it's a very broad measure. It includes both spending on goods and services. And Kathleen, as you mentioned, there's been um, a pickup on services and, and, and good spending has been doing okay too, but we are seeing, uh, we are seeing a shift in a post-pandemic uh, environment towards uh, travel, entertainment, personal services, and away from uh, goods purchases. Uh, in the past, we dedicated the consumer uh, session on just the measurement of consumer uh, goods purchases, in particular real retail goods. Uh, but given uh, the current uh, situation with the consumer, we are really focusing on, um, on consumer services and providing perspective on measurement of uh, the services sector uh, as sources of data by the BEA and uh, on how to interpret the current consumer spending. Oh, thanks, Jack. Um, moving on to prices. Um, certainly prices are another important data set. And uh, they were among the first economic concepts to really be tracked by government. Um, in colonial America, we had Benjamin Franklin collecting prices. And we have prices on corn, wheat, cotton, soybeans going way back in time. Uh, the price of West Texas intermediate crude oil starts in 1912 and the Consumer Price Index, 1913. So almost every department collects some price data, but we're going to focus on prices from BLS and BEA. Uh, the BLS is, of course, the agency that focuses most on prices. They produce the Consumer Price Index, the Producer Price Index, the employment cost index, import export prices, and then of course the GDP price indexes are produced as part of the national accounts. In the prices session, we're going to focus on CPI primarily and the personal consumption expenditure in the uh, chained index from the BEA. Uh, 
there are many measures of CPI. People talk about CPI as if there were one, but really we have the CPIU, which is what someone might call the headline series. But then we also have the CPIW, the urge Urban Wage Earners and Clerical Workers Index. That is very similar, but very important because it's used for escalation, social security escalation, and things like that. BLS now produces a chain CPI index. This they created um, to be more closely in alignment with of the indexes coming out of the BEA. And there are other indexes also covering the CPI, like the CPI for older Americans and an, a harmonized index of consumer prices, which it really parallels the standard for the European Union. It has become, however, true that the PCE chain price index is what the Fed is currently um, measuring or watching. And this started under Chairman Greenspan. There are also many problems of comparability between the CPI and the PCE chain price index. And uh, we will have a speaker from the BEA who will talk about these differences. Um, briefly, the CPI is never revised because it's an important escalator, whereas the PCE index is revised very frequently. They also have substantially different compositions. And so it's really the market-based PCE chain price index and the chain CPIU that are the most comparable. They are both chain, revised, and have no imputations. Uh, so I have a graph here, a simply of the chain CPI, the headline CPI, and then the market-based PCE chain price index. You'll see over time, um, the PCE chain price index tends to run a little bit lower. And it's actually substantially lower at the moment. Um, but um, a lot of this has to do with uh, differences, and those will be covered in depth at the EMS. Um, Mike, you ran the BLS price program for over a decade, so I'm sort of interested in your insights here. Um, you know, we can see on this graph inflation eased, uh, you know, it's eased a bit in uh, recent months, but we're still a long way from the 2% target that, uh, that we hear the Fed 
is shooting for. Um, so in your view, what do you think is the cause of this high inflation that has sort of stayed with us? Thanks, Maureen. Yeah, so first, there is a lot of concern about inflation, and, and rightfully so. I think there's different periods. Early on in the pandemic, you had coming out of it a lot of pent-up demand. You had a lot of wealth transfer to the household sector. And also at the same time, because of the pandemic, there was a lot of supply side constraints. There's a little bit of a perfect storm. And I think that contributed early on to some of these really high rates. Well, if you take a look at different measures of supply chain, it has eased quite a bit. And I think what's what's going on now is some different elements. For example, there is some, um, you have the, the, um, the accommodating monetary policies early on did contribute uh, a lot to, to rising inflation, but now we've sort of reversed that with the contractionary policies. They've just taken time to work themselves out. Um, there is contract inflation. Uh, you mentioned the CPIW being used to uh, index social security. The increase in Social Security in January was the highest in 40 years. And so what we're seeing through that, through a lot of private contracts, is a catch up to the inflation that occurred back in 2022. Um, I think another element of this is even though it's been easing, inflation really became much more general. Early on, a lot of folks were talking about, well, energy inflation or food inflation. But there was a point in October of 22, if you take a look at the items that are in the CPI, over 90% of the expenditure items had inflation rates higher than that target you were talking about. And so that was just a very much more general diffuse inflation. And since that time, the current statistic that uh, in terms of the percent above that target has fallen down to about 68%. So again, it's eased, just not as fast as you would, as you would like. I think the big story right now is um, what's really happening is that goods inflation has decreased quite a bit. What's going up is, is services inflation. And I think that's in keeping with the strength of professional business services and also the difficulty that leisure and hospitality industries have in finding workers and those wage increases that they're passing on. Um, I focused a lot about CPI, but uh, it is important, as you mentioned out, to look at the, um, the PCE index. And one of the, the big benefits of that is on a monthly basis, it helps to measure substitution. It actually captures what consumers are doing in response to price change. The chain CPI does the same thing, but that chain CPI is not final for a good period of time after its initial release. Whereas with the PCE, even though it is adjusted, as you said, it has a direct measure of substitution in that month, which is one of the reasons why the Fed likes it in terms of looking at actual consumer behavior. Um, so to get a more detailed look at inflation, I suggest going to the uh, inflation session on Monday, July 17th. And there's also um, actually a, a session on Tuesday, which looks at the sort of the, the, the buyer end of this, which is consumer sentiment data, what the consumers are feeling about the economy um, and how they've been greatly affected by inflation in recent months. Right. Okay, um, moving on here. Um, Another important category of housing and construction. Um, there's really an abundance of housing data. We have new residential construction from the Census Bureau of that release of gives us permits, starts, completions, 
Uh, census also reports new mobile homes. Um, the Census Bureau has uh, the American Housing Survey, which is conducted every two years for HUD. And that gives a lot of detail on who is buying homes, uh, demographic data related to housing. And new home sales also come from the Census Bureau. We have a private source, the National Association of Realtors, that provides the important existing home sales data. And then, of course, we have vacancy rates, the housing stock, and house prices. I've graphed uh, three particular sources. And one thing to really remember with these uh, house prices is you really need to know the definition. And uh, the um, definitions do change pretty markedly based on the source. So the FHFA home price index is calculated just on single family homes that were financed by conforming loans. In other words, loans that meet Fannie and Freddie requirements for purchase. A realtors um, is really a median sales price of existing family, single family homes. Whereas the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index is similar to FHFA in that it's a repeat sales index, but it differs because it includes higher priced homes, um, purchases of while the FHFA also includes re refinancings, it's valuated so it puts a larger weight on higher priced homes, whereas the FHFA is equally weighted. So there are all these fine points to sort of keep in mind that uh, you will learn as uh, we have our EMS session this year. Um, this year, we're also changing the focus somewhat, and we're going to a, a focus on affordability, which has become an important issue. Another track eight session will be productivity and costs. <laughs> So the BLS takes the hours work data and combines it with output from census and BEA to calculate labor productivity. It produces quarterly measures for business, non-farm business, manufacturing, and the non-financial corporate sector. It also, on the productivity and cost release, provides data on compensation and unit labor costs. 
Um, here I simply graphed the annual rate of growth of, of uh, productivity. And um, on this chart, I'm showing unit labor costs versus unit non-labor costs. So um, you can see that uh, unit labor costs actually have been uh, rising at a faster rate uh, since the pandemic, but only recently have unit non-labor costs sort of caught up. And Dana, um, you sent me this interesting chart, which I put in the presentation. And um, I know economic historians sometimes refer to waves of productivity growth. And um, this seems to show perhaps a wave or some strength in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so I'm wondering, in your view, what caused that particular period to stand out? And do you see any, um, any more waves on the horizon? Well, credit for uh, the wave that you mentioned in the late 90s and early 2000s generally is attributed to personal computers and advances in information technology. Now, I know personal computers came out long before the mid-90s. I can remember in the 80s um, having uh, some, but we were using them really as typewriters and calculators. It really wasn't until a good decade later that businesses started really understanding and exploiting the potential of the personal computer, and IT technologies just really took off. Uh, that's when the real productivity breakthroughs were made. Now, looking forward, many are optimistic that artificial intelligence could herald a whole new wave of productivity growth. I know many participants on this webinar probably have already experimented with applications like ChatGPT, for example. And it's not hard to imagine new AI technologies helping us do our routine things faster. But similar to the case of PCs, the significant productivity breakthroughs may not come until we use applications we haven't even contemplated yet. And of course, the reason you like higher productivity growth is because it makes space for stronger GDP growth without necessarily having that concurrent pickup in inflation. We'll be learning a lot more about productivity in the EMS. There's a session dedicated to it on Tuesday. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so financial. Um, this is such a broad category of data that we've never been able to more than scratch the surface, but we do have a session on the financial accounts. Um, the Federal Reserve, besides the financial accounts, they um, give us interest rates, exchange rates, money banking and credit data, and of course, uh, of their own balance sheet. Um, they also have worked uh, jointly with uh, BEA uh, to produce an integrated fin financial set of accounts that also includes international data. So all these uh, 
data can answer questions that people are interested in, like household net worth, how it's changing, holdings of financial assets by households, and corporate balance sheets. Um, Ken, I know you're involved in that session, and I'm interested, um, with all this wealth of data, what are the top statistics that you obviously look at? So, thank you, Maureen. Uh, well, certainly, uh, I think you have a few charts uh, relating to uh, mortgages uh, in terms of how much uh, households are holding. Mm -hmm. And uh, typically, when we hear the word balance sheets, uh, you think that only applies to corporations. Uh, but what the great thing about the financial accounts is that you could also assess uh, the health of households by looking at their balance sheets. So uh, we could look at uh, how much assets households are holding in terms of uh, financial instruments, for example, equity holdings, or uh, how much the value of their residential home is worth. And then, of course, on the liability side, uh, how much mortgages that households are holding. And if we go back to that first chart, which showed uh, mortgage debt, uh, what the great thing uh, that you can kind of dive into the data is that you could see that before the bursting of the housing bubble and the ensuing global financial crisis in 2008 and 09, you could see how high mortgages at a percent of total household debt became and kind of signaling that households were over leveraged. So definitely not in a good position in terms of entering uh, the recession that came about. As we fast forward to what's currently happening uh, over the last few years, um, household uh, mortgage debt is quite low. Uh, so you could kind of uh, surmise that uh, households are not over leveraged currently. So if we do happen to enter a recession, as some uh, economists uh, do expect later this year, um, households are actually in pretty good shape uh, to perhaps endure a mild economic contraction. Um, now, in terms of household net worth, uh, as indicated earlier, um, this is directly correlated to how the stock market performs. Uh, so um, whenever the stock market does go up, um, you do see household net worth uh, increase as well. So giving a state of how the household uh, is faring. Another um, aspect of the financial accounts I like to look at, uh, as you mentioned, Maureen, uh, the Fed has been um, making the data set richer by introducing enhanced, integrated, and distributional financial accounts. In particular, I like to look at household net worth broken down by race. Uh, they also released this data by age and income. And uh, with the household net worth by race, uh, I think it's important because uh, given the importance of ESG these days, it can kind of act as a scorecard in terms of whether we're making any progress in terms of inequality uh, for the entire US economy and how 
uh, household net worth is faring by race. Uh, and then finally, uh, going back to balance sheets, um, there is also a rich uh, data set uh, applying just to corporations. And uh, in that sense, we could, for example, look at business debt uh, as a ratio of over GDP. Uh, and then we can kind of, uh, you know, take an informed guess of how uh, businesses and um, whether they are in an over or under leveraged uh, position. So certainly if you'd like to find out more about the financial accounts data from the Federal Reserve, please tune in to our session or better yet, uh, come to our session in person on Tuesday, July 18th. Thanks, So um, today is just really the beginning of what will be a, a series of events. So we have a seasonal adjustment webinar on June 29, and then the seminar itself on July 17th and 18th. And I just like to highlight two speakers um, we have for lunch, Mike McKee of Bloomberg and Kathy Bustanzik of Nationwide. And then we will wrap up this seminar with a leadership panel. Uh, so the leadership of Census, BEA, and BLS um, will be with us to discuss the future of government data and, uh, and perhaps uh, tell us about some new things that they have underway that uh, will be of interest to those of you uh, who follow business economics. Okay, so um, we, I think we may have one question in the chat. So we have a few minutes here for um, so Eric Lenz um, has written, oh, and I see Mike Horgan is typing an answer. Mike, uh, uh, let me just, uh, I suppose everyone can read this question, uh, which Eric has about labor productivity growth. Um, Mike, would you like to take that on? And I, and I was pointing to Eric that we will make sure that we get an answer to the question. Um, I know Dana, uh, has been looking closely at the productivity. Um, Danny, you can see the question. It's really about that lower productivity growth after the Great Recession. And the question is, are we going to expect to see a similar slowdown in productivity in the first four years after the, the, the 2020 recession? Well, we actually got a lot of these data already, but the most recent data on productivity are clouded, I have to say, by COVID-related um, volatility. So in 2020, actually productivity jumped up um, to about 4.7%. That's possibly because we still had some output, but hours work just collapsed. And, you know, it's, it's really a very volatile reading and almost should be thrown out. But then we had some offset in 2021 through the latest reading that goes through the first quarter of 2023 that period actually had a negative productivity growth reading of down about 2%. So you know, it's, it's hard to say whether you take the average of that or how you wanna smooth through that. But overall, it does not look like productivity is accelerating during this period. In fact, um, it may be very close to what we saw 
in that 2010 through 2014 period. And that's a concern because again, you want stronger productivity to boost stronger potential growth to limit the upward pressure on inflation as we as we grow. And and let me just add that, you know, in 2010, we started seeing strength in the labor market. And that's that you're either the numerator or the denominator is going to swamp at different points. And when labor really grows fast, it may take a while for output to then through a strong recovery to start really advancing and getting those that pickup in uh, productivity. Um, the, the other, more if, if I may, just the other thing I'd point out is the future, which is um, employment growth with demographics. Employment growth is going to uh, really slow just because of demographics over the next 10 years. And I think that's going to have some interesting consequences for productivity. Absolutely. Um, Adrian is asking if uh, the slides will be distributed and absolutely uh, Nabe will uh, Nabe can post this presentation. So um, I don't see any other questions here. So while I'm waiting to see if we get any more, I'd just like to ask um, um, my fellow uh, committee members, are there any particular sessions that you're looking forward to personally that you think people should want to go to? Jack, um, I know you had a couple. Sorry about that, Maureen. I was uh, muted. Uh, oh, I apologize okay. for uh, But yes, you know, I have, as I mentioned, this is my 20th seminar, and I sit in on the same sessions often year in and year out because you learn something new. And uh, there's always new information and new techniques and perspective. So, you know, it's really hard sometimes, but since you've asked which one I really enjoy the most, I will tell you, I thoroughly enjoy listening to our guest speakers uh, that come in from, um, uh, from various uh, uh, positions. And uh, they tell us about how they use economic data in their professional work. And so this year in particular, I'm looking forward to hearing from Michael McKee from uh, Bloomberg TV and radio. Uh, I don't know if many people know this, but he's not only a professional journalist, but he also has graduate training in economics. So uh, his interpretation, his understanding of the data, and his perspective on what you can and what you cannot do when reporting the data is going to be of interest to me uh, this year. And on day, on day two, uh, we'll have Kathy Boschancic, Chief Economist of Nationwide, as our luncheon speaker. She'll be discussing business cycle analysis, and she'll explore something that I think many of us are struggling with, an example being that question on productivity earlier. Uh, and that's the fact that the COVID recession was so unusual that it complicates the comparison of different business cycles over time. So I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. And I see uh, we have a question here from Warren uh, asking our thoughts on the spurts of growth in consumer and uh, consumer spending, I presume, uh, in the last two quarters. So we've had a, sort of a strong October with not much happening, November and December. And then we had a similar pattern in the first quarter. Any thoughts on that? 
Well, I'll take a shot at it. My interpretation is, is certainly um, uh, people have had uh, a strong job. We've seen strong job growth uh, and strong wage growth. Um, and that has continued. You know, it, it goes up and down. It's uh, not a steady stream. Of course, last year, uh, prior the year prior, we had the benefit of uh, the stimulus money from the fiscal policy. And uh, that helped a lot of people uh, have the opportunity uh, to spend money. Uh, what's really kind of interesting now is because there was such pent up demand, you know, people have filled up their homes and, and, uh, to a degree with uh, uh, physical goods and uh, they still have uh, a significant amount of, uh, of funds yet to spend uh, or will, will spend, I should say. Uh, and they're moving towards services. Uh, but so the, the key here is, in my view, that uh, people, spe uh, consumer spending is really in many ways driven on, on, on how people see their job, their job security. Uh, we already talked about, Ken brought up um, on uh, household wealth. Uh, we've seen the benefit of uh, a fairly strong job market, but uh, a, a stock market prior uh, uh, to perhaps a year or so ago when inflation took off. So people have the ability to spend and willingness to spend. Um, now, the big question is going forward into the remainder of this year. I think my view is, is that we are going to be seeing some slowing in, in job growth as the economy slows down. And that will uh, certainly temper the amount of spending that consumers uh, will, will do in this economy. But I, at this point, I'm I'm still in the, uh, the slow economy, no recession camp. I, I think the consumers never underestimate them. Um, they'll surprise you. Okay. Well, I see from Eric Lenz, I, I love his uh, little quote here. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the measurement seminar in July. And Eric, I hope we see you there in person. You know, in person, you'll have the opportunity to hear these luncheon speakers that aren't on virtual. Actually, the only thing that we have on virtual will be the core courses needed for um, the CBE. So coming in person gives you the opportunity to really uh, experience a much more complete seminar. Yeah, I would second that, Maureen. You know, let, let's not forget that this is a networking event. Uh, in addition to the great content, um, you'll meet, uh, by being in person, each of the great people on this committee uh, that you're seeing on the screen. And um, over two full days, you will make lifelong connections with other speakers, uh, peers, and other professionals at EMS. 2023. Yes, exactly. You know, um, as as an employer, I'm just amazed at how excited my staff are when they come back from the EMS because they have met, you know, people that they've only talked to on the phone. Well, in fact, they probably didn't speak to them even on the phone. They emailed them. They saw their names on releases. They were able to establish a connection that um, made them feel much more 
open to reaching out to those people in the future for help. And also, you know, it's time for us to invest in our staff and young people. Uh, there's no getting around the fact that remote work has its advantages. I know a lot of people uh, really prefer remote work, but they also miss a lot of the connections and the mentoring opportunities and some of the spontaneous conversations. And uh, this is a great opportunity to have some of that. Uh, so um, I encourage everyone to register for the EMS and I really look forward to uh, seeing you there on July 17th. Thank you very much and uh, looking forward to it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of eConversations with NEEB. We hope you'll join us for the 20th annual NEEB Foundation Economic Measurement Seminar, July 17th and 18th at the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Economic Measurement Seminar provides a unique opportunity to learn about federal agency data directly from the producers of the data. Pairing the data producer with a data user, the seminar provides a comprehensive picture of the importance and different uses of economic measurement today. If you've previously attended, we encourage you to come back for Track B sessions, spend some time exploring measurement on hot topics such as consumer sentiment, the energy revolution, housing affordability, manufacturing, wages, consumer spending, and the debt crisis. Early bird deadline is June 14th. Please visit nave.com slash EMS 2023 for more information and to register.